This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. It is good to be back with you all again. It's been a while since Marcus and I've had the chance to kind of get together for a conversation in this context. Um, Marcus, you know, uh, the COVID crisis has kind of put us all on a, um, a hiatus that we didn't really want to have, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. I, you know, this has been um, an odd circumstance, to say the least. Um, I think you and I both missed the conversations that we've been building Um over the course of the show's life. And mm-hmm. um, so now we have an opportunity to kind of resurrect the show on a different platform. That's right. Um, and I, that, that I think will allow us to speak to, um, to continue to speak to some issues that are even more pressing now, perhaps, than they were um, pre-COVID. I agree. It, this yeah. has been an interesting time. It's a very interesting time in our country, an inter- interesting time across across the globe. Uh, so it's been a while since we've been together. And also, you know, Blue Ridge Public Radio, um, the studios have been closed because of the COVID crisis. So we yeah. haven't been able to get in the studio, which I have to say, I really miss. Um, there's something about going into the studio, seeing the work that is being done behind the yeah. scenes, the engineers doing their work, you know, the producers doing their work. Uh, so we do miss that. But um, this has given us an opportunity to kind of come back together again, as you said, in a different platform mm-hmm. on Zoom. But I want to say this, Marcus, what I've been uh, grateful to hear is how many of our listeners have still been listening to the old shows, to mm-hmm. the old podcast, because you and I both said a lot of these conversations that we want to continue to have addressing some of the current issues We've talked about some of those things over the course of the show already. Yeah, we, we certainly have. And I, I just continue to be struck. Um, I think struck is the right word. Yeah, but but, but struck by how um, so many, if not all of the previous conversations that we've had on the show prior to COVID, prior to the racial <laughs> protest, were in a sense, um, it seems prescient, um, prescient in the sense that uh, they kind of, it's almost as if they, 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 in a way, prefigured where we are now, so that mm-hmm. people are are returning to those older conversations, um, in order to get some perspective, to gain some perspective on on what's happening now, and and I think that just speaks to the show's importance. It speaks to its relevance. Um, it speaks to its usefulness um, mm-hmm. as a as a medium um, uh, a medium. Uh, whereby we can converse about these issues with guests and also a medium whereby um, our listenership can think about how to construct conversations around these, around these issues right. um, in ways that are not only, um, n- not only honest, but also probing, critical, right. um, challenging. Right. <clears throat> right. And, I, and I'm so glad because you and I, I think we've been surprised since we've been off the air. But knowing that the podcast did exist, it's been surprising to kind of look at our Facebook page and see that people are still liking the Waters and Harvey show. Mm-hmm. So we're really grateful for that, for uh, the, to have our listeners still engaged with these conversations that we've been having over the course of these uh, past couple of years. I think, Marcus, before we went into this, uh, um, this forced hiatus as you called it we had recorded 70 shows you and i think were both i think were amazed by the by the number of shows that we've done up to this point wow i, I th- that number 70 still hits me like a mac truck every time, every time <laughs> I hear it. but you know i the, the other thing that what, what that also brings to mind for me is 
how how rich the topics that we tackle on this show are, how rich they are, and how complex they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the complexity of the issues that we've that we've tackled on the show um, uh, demand, you know, at least seventy shows, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, in, in, in order to be treated responsibly. And I think I think that what we will find is is in, in the coming months, years, years, is that. Um, you know, uh, these topics will generate another 70 shows. Probably. Mm, right, right. And perhaps right. even more than that, because there's so much complexity, there's so much nuance, there's so much history and analysis to be unpacked mm-hmm. um, over the course of these conversations that we've been staging um, and making available to our listenership. So, right. yeah, so on the one hand, the, the number 70, it really, I'm amazed that we've done this much work, this much work on the show. But on the other hand, when I, when I think about um, how challenging the topics that we that we have have tackled um, are. I'm less surprised that that we that we that we're already at the seventy mark, the right. seventy show mark. And there's so many other things that we can just say about those shows. But I want to say this yeah. too because you talked about uh, this new platform. So the platform that we'll we're using, like so many other people are using, is Zoom. So I'm sitting in my home office, and Marcus, you you could tell our listeners where you're sitting. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my. I'm seeing I'm, you. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm on the couch in my in my home office in my in my house. <laughs> you look very comfortable. I'm sitting in the office. <laughs> Maybe maybe I need to kind of switch it up and sit on my sofa too. No. <laughs> maybe even go outside on the porch. But we know yeah. that so many people are using Zoom right now. Uh, our listeners know that you and I are also professors at the university. You, uh, although have you've been on leave uh, this past semester, which was great because you didn't have to try to make this transition, you will be going back into the classroom well. in the fall, and you're trying to plan how to use this uh, this new mode. Of of communication to communicate with students. But Marcus, I tell you, um, as good as technology is, one thing that I have been, uh, I think, conclusion I've come to, and I'm glad that we're able to use it to kind of re-engage with our listeners. One of the great things about being in the studio is that when we're sitting there with our guest, I think it, it enhances not only the conversation, but it enhances the sense of developing community between the people who come into the show. I am um, I'm grateful for this technology, grateful that we can kind of re-engage our listeners this way, but looking forward to the day when everybody can yeah. kind of come back together. And I'm sure that you have a perspective with regard to that when it comes to the classroom. Yeah. And I, I would echo what you just said about um, how the experience of recording the show physically in person in the studio compares to this, the zoom experience. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is, it, they, they are very different experiences uh, that I think require a different type of engagement, <laughs> believe it or not, and, and, and a different type of, of, of attention um, that I'm excited to, to explore. Um, as, as far as the classroom goes, um, you know, I, our, our listeners may not be surprised that um, for the most part, um, I am a traditionalist <laughs> in the sense that, uh, in the sense that, you know, I, I prefer to engage students in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I prefer to have face-to-face conversations with them around text, around other course materials. Um, I prefer to see students working in groups and, and you know, observe that and learn from that. Um, but now, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, it appears that that is not really an, a safe option uh, for me. So I'm having to really think about the possibility of, of moving um, 
really my entire uh, um, approach to teaching, at least for the time being, online. Um, and that will involve sort of rethinking, at least on one level, rethinking how I define student engagement, right? Because it becomes harder, I think, at that point to really gauge how well students are are engaging, making sense of course materials. It becomes more, it becomes more difficult um, in some ways to to gauge um, uh, or to measure how much students are or how how um, how firm a grasp students have on the course material, how much they're learning. Um, so I think this will be a um, a learning experience for me um, as a professor um, who, you know, very much prefers the the, the traditional brick and mortar um, <laughs> approach to teaching. And, you know, I'm, I'm, while I'm not, I'll admit, I'm not thrilled about being forced to migrate everything online, but at the same time, it is an opportunity to, um, to think about teaching differently and, mm -hmm. and, and, and explore a different modality of teaching. Mm -hmm. I'll put it that way. And we'll right. see, we'll see how that goes. I'll stay tuned. <laughs> right. <laughs> it it kind of puts us in this kind of innovative space. And, it does. And, if I could, it does. and if I could, you know, Marcus just really back up and I know we're spending a little bit of time here in, in, in the opening of the show, but it's just really good to be back. And one of the things that I wanted to point out about, you know, one of the purposes of our show, and I think that, one of the larger missions of Blue Ridge Public Radio and public radio in general across the country is enhancing the sense of community among people. Um, I, I have been amazed. I think you and I both have been amazed in conversations that you and I have had after we record a show with a guest that we sometimes come into the conversation thinking, well, you know, I'm not really sure how this conversation is going to go. Um, I'm hoping that there's going to be something that comes out of it that will be of value, not only to ourselves, but to especially to our listeners who mm -hmm. we are, everything is geared towards. And we are amazed after we come out, you get into the conversation with a person and you hear so much more about their life, what has brought them to their work. Um, it's very nuanced. It's very, it's more complex than you would have uh, expected going in. And I think for me that uh, is, that's one of the most effective things about uh, the conversations that not only we've been able to have, but that you hear across Blue Ridge Public Radio and on NPR in general, just these stories of people's lives. And I was recently listening to one show that's produced by uh, NPR, uh, Fresh Air, and I was just struck by getting this backstory. And it reminded me of the conversations that you and I have had about these backstories that we get from our guests when they come into the studio. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I, I, I think what you just described um, in terms of the way that story and conversation uh, can serve together as, as a kind of entree or vehicle into community building mm -hmm. um, is, is one of the reasons that story is just so central um, mm -hmm. to my own academic research and to my teaching. Right. Um, I, I incorporate story a lot because I, I'm not and I'm, I'm sure you probably would agree with this um, as a historian, as a trained historian. Um, and in my opinion, there is no better. Uh, there is no better path into conversation with a stranger mm -hmm. than the story. Than the story. Than the sharing of stories. And, you know, I 
that and, and, and in that respect, there really is nothing else like the story. <laughs> um, um, that as far as uh, a means of connecting with the stranger, connecting with the unknown, bringing people from um, disparate um, social context, disparate cultural experiences, disparate um, histories together, mm-hmm. um, at, least, at least within the context of conversation where right. stories can be shared. And then once those stories are shared, we can begin to reflect. Right, right. right? And, and it's so, so, it's, so it's through the sort of, it's through the sharing of story, um, the sharing of conversation, and then, the, and then the sharing of critical reflection. Um, I think it, it's there. It's in, it's in the, the, the richness of sharing those um, in, in, in those related endeavors that the possibility of community, whatever mm-hmm. community means, because I, I, right. I would like to have some, I, I have some <laughs> questions about what community means. I mean, that, that term exactly. is going around a lot, but it's, 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 within the, it's, it's within the richness of those exchanges that the possibility of community emerges. I was right, just right, right. And you're right. So one, again, you know, uh, just to kind of reiterate our enthusiasm about being back, one of, you know, and, and I'm grateful, I think both you and I, Marcus, are grateful for the fact that, you know, we've been doing our program, you know, I, I can't put a, a, a number of years on it, but as we said, we've recorded 70 shows. Those shows were 30 minutes, you know, in, in length. We would always say, man, we're running out of time here. Uh, grateful for the fact that we are are, um, are that that Blue Ridge Public Radio has given us a little bit more space and a little bit more time yeah. here. So we're kind of expanding these shows from uh, from 30 minutes to one hour. It gives us a chance to kind of be engaged in conversation a little bit longer. I know that that's a treat for us, and I'm hoping that it's going to be a treat for our listeners as well. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things that we're grateful for as we kind of come back into, uh, in, into the studio. And we just want to let you all know that as we have now found a way to kind of re-engage you all um, that we are expanding from 30 minutes to one hour and the show will air on Friday mornings, Friday mornings, 9 a.m. on Friday mornings, which is a great uh, time to kind of to be able to engage the show as well and three o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So we're looking forward to that. We'll be sharing the slot with a range of programs that address some of the issues, Marcus, that are bubbling to the surface right now. We have talked about social justice. We have talked about issues of social change and many of the shows that Blue Ridge Public Radio will be kind of bringing in around our show that we'll be sharing that slot with. We'll be talking about a number of those issues. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, this to me is, is uh, very encouraging. Um, I, I think that it will allow some of the conversations that we'll be having um, to reach um, an even broader audience, perhaps, maybe folks who um, would prefer to tune in earlier in the day on Friday, mm-hmm. um, who weren't tuning in previously, will now turn in, hopefully, um, and engage the show, engage some of our conversations, connect right. with us. Um, so, you know, and again, I, I think this really speaks to, um, this really speaks to the relevance of the show, and it speaks to, I would suggest, an appetite. Mm-hmm. An appetite, right? Um, in the local community and in broader, in the broader um, society, um, regionally, mm-hmm. and maybe even statewide. That's right. Um, for for serious probing conversations around you know, issues of social justice, issues of equality, um, issues of, of what it means to to live, um, 
and and try to forge a life in a in a in a, in a society self-defined as a democracy, um, etc. So yeah, I. I'm excited about the 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 two the two time slides. Now. That's right. That's right. That it will be airing. And so remember, you can also, if you don't hear us, on, you know, on on the radio, uh, you can hear us on online as well. Mm-hmm. BPR.org. You can get the show there, and many of the other shows that uh, Blue Ridge Public Radio uh, produces, you'll be able to find there at the website. So, Marcus, let's let's kind of shift a little bit here. We we opened by saying that there is so much to discuss, and there is. I mean, it's it's been amazing to watch over the course of this year. 2020 is going to go down as an interesting year. Um, <laughs> we have, um, I uh, read an article not too long ago in one of my favorite magazines, the Rape Magazine, which kind of focuses on issues around, um, uh, uh, you know, men's interest. And the editor, well, the founder of that magazine always produces these great letters. And at the end of 2019, he talked about how it had been such a rough year and he was glad to see 2019 be gone. And let's bring on 2020, but look at where we are, um, which has given us a lot, a lot to discuss, right? Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of humorously reminded of something my department chair um, has said to me multiple times. And in in saying this, I believe he's referencing an old Persian saying, um, and rendered in English, basically the saying is, um, "May you live an interesting time." <laughs> and uh, I, I think, I think, as far as if, if we could put interesting on a scale of of, of zero to ten. Uh, I think 2020 would rank <laughs> probably as a 12 or a 13. That's right. And 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 and, and 2019 probably would be somewhere <laughs> below zero. I mean, this is just this is just really uh, um, quite quite a time in which to live. Right. Um, and and I would say you know a, a lot is happening at once. And so that makes it that makes it somewhat of a challenge to to sort of get a hold to sort of wrap our heads completely around what is going on. And and it may not be possible to do that ultimately. But but I do think that I I do think that the country um, and and I I don't mean to suggest that this is that this is a unique inflection point necessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do Mm -hmm. think that it is an inflection point point. in the country's history that I would argue is not unlike inflection points that the country has um, underwent at previous points in its history. Yes, yes. As an historian, I think think about, you know, the Great Depression. The Great Depression was a major inflection point in in our history. And I, Marcus, you and I talked about this. uh, I just recently read Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s book that was produced, Mm. that that was published back in the 1940s. And I highly recommend this book called The Vital Center um, Mm. and how you can energize. Because in America, you know, we're trying to, no one ever gets what, all that they want, but politics. I've heard one uh, one scholar that um, who I have found interest uh, found interesting. I've heard him say on on a number of occasions that uh, politics is the art of the possible. But you've got to be willing to talk to each other in order to work things out. Compromise is a part of that, and I think that you know our even when you talk about an inflection point, I think we're really at one. How are we going to work together with each other, uh, kind of moving forward? So as we think about today's show and talking, you, our, our listeners, you all are probably gathering from this one that this is an 
opportunity for Marcus and I to kind of catch up with you all. Um, Marcus and I will confess <laughs> that we have been having conversations with each other all along. Um, <laughs> we we will we'll let you. Yeah, that's it. We'll <laughs> let you all know that we will call each other on the phone. Something is going on. And we start engaging in a conversation and I, I will, I will, Marcus, I will let our listeners know that most of the time when you call me or I call you, it's always like, well, brother, look, I'm not going to hold you for long. It's what we'll say. <laughs> then we look down and, and, and an hour and a half has gone by. <laughs> or two hours, right? <laughs> That's right. But we have always enjoyed, Marcus, doing yeah. the uh, reflection show. And our listeners will recall that although we have guests who come in and we engage in those conversations with guests, we will take a time uh, from from time to time, we'll just engage in conversations with each other to reflect upon those conversations with guests because it gives us more time to kind of to, to do a deeper dive of analysis into some of the issues that our guests have raised when they've come in. And they always leave us with more questions. But I know that you have enjoyed the reflection shows too. Oh, oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think as as an academic, as an intellectual, the, the reflection shows are particularly fun because, well, for a number of reasons, but uh, for one, they really allow us an opportunity to distill mm-hmm. um, much of what emerged as salient mm-hmm. in prior conversations with guests, points the guests have made um, that we consider to be particularly significant, um, given the show's mission, um, given the issues that we try to, to raise um, and, and, and move to the fore on the show. Um, and, then, and then also uh, the reflection shows are, are very enjoyable for me because they provide I think, <laughs> to kind of going back to your point about our phone conversations, <laughs> they really they really give our listenership a glimpse into what our our phone conversations <laughs> sound like, right? And, and how they and how they kind of go. You know, the um, the dynamic I think is uh is very is very um is very palpable in our in our reflection shows. You know, the the, the dynamic that prevails when we're talking on the phone around some of the issues. So, and then also what I would say is that um, the reflection shows give us space to ask questions and make deeper points that we, that we didn't necessarily have time to make in the shows that we had with guests. So I think that the, the reflection shows are really invaluable for both. Yeah. Of us. And since you, and since you use the word distill, I'm going to, um, I'm going to use that word and, and kind of give a tip to one of our past guests um, because the, this, when we distill these conversations, it's, it helps us get to our, the conversations that we've had with guests. It allows mm-hmm. us to get to the pure heart of the conversation. Right. <laughs> and remember that was kind of the conversation that we had with Troy Ball when she came in and we discussed her, book her autobiography uh, mm-hmm. the pure heart uh, and you know she owns a distillery here and so distilling I like the fact that you use that word to give yeah. us an opportunity to kind of think about one of those past conversations well this is not the traditional reflection show because we we have a lot to catch up on as we've yeah. kind of alluded to now Marcus the thing that has put us in in this current state that we're in having us on zoom uh, doing uh, our show 
uh, via Zoom, uh, really is the COVID crisis. And I know that you and I want to talk about that. But Marcus, as I think about uh, larger questions, because normally we will start to show off with some type of question that we're trying to get to the heart of maybe find an answer to or that we want people to think about when we start our shows. Through this whole crisis that we're going through, Marcus, one of the things, and it's not just this issue, but other issues that we'll, we'll address in a few minutes here as well, but they're key questions that have been emerging in my mind. Now, I did teach last semester. Um, I hadn't taught a class in a while, uh, but I did teach last semester, did have to end up moving that class online, um, but still was really actively engaged with my students. I taught the history of the American Civil War and Reconstruction, which is one of my favorite classes to teach. And I just, you know, and even if I teach humanities, um, you know, humanities uh, uh, class and looking at the development of the modern world, and looking at the Enlightenment, things regarding the and I heard someone talking about the Enlightenment today. I think John Meacham, who is a, a major historian, was on uh, MSNBC News um, not too long ago, um, and he was talking about this issue of uh, of the Enlightenment and what it means. But questions, Marcus, that have been emerging to my mind, and question that I started the class off last semester with my with my students was, who are we? Who are we? Because the Civil War, I think it, it revolves around, the, it, it, in a way, this question was at the heart of what was going on with the Civil War. And even Reconstruction is at the heart of where we are right now. One of the, that's one of the major questions that have emerged for me. Who are we? And then I have also been in conversations where trying to navigate this current situation that we find ourselves in, all that it has exposed and they're asking, and I've told them, I said, for me, it's not only the question of who are we, but are the question of who do we wish to be, right? Mm -hmm. Is there some goal that we're working for? Uh, and so we need to think about that. But you and I talked about it as we were prepping for this conversation mm -hmm. today, and you raised another question, which I think, <laughs> I, you know, you need to kind of drop that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think it is important to raise that question. And the question basically was, I, 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 would, I would describe it as kind of a, um, a question that, pre, that probably precedes the question of who are we? Mm -hmm. And that question is, is there a we? In the first place, <laughs> right. um, and I, you know, depending upon one's perspective, I would throw this, 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 this sec, this, this question in there as well as as an additional question to the one that I just posed. Should there be a we? No, should there be a we? And um, I, I, I can't help but to think about the um, the work of James Baldwin with respect to this question of of. Who are we? Mm -hmm. Is there a we? Should there be a we? Um, and my mind goes immediately to Baldwin because in this in, in this country's history, um, weeness, if I, if I can use that that idea, and think about has, it, Marcus, that word is used in at the very beginning of our Constitution. We, absolutely, the people, we, we is the people, we, we the people. Right. Um, and and in this country's, uh, I would say, political imagination, weeness is is immediately tied to liberty. Mm -hmm. So what it means to be American, according to the, the, the country's founding documents, um, is integrally tied to liberty. But what does Baldwin say about liberty? 
So, so Ball was interviewed by Ken Burns, documentarian, um, the great documentarian, award-winning documentarian. Um, many, I, I, I want to say maybe in the 1980s, um, mm-hmm. some time ago. And Baldwin is asked a specific question, and, and the, because the film was about the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Baldwin was, was asked by Ken Burns, what is liberty? What is liberty? And so Baldwin kind of begins by saying, well, you know, um, on one hand, you know, I could turn to the, to the Declaration of Independence mm-hmm. and invoke the language used in that document. But then Baldwin says, from, the, from, a, from, from a Black American perspective, um, this symbol, the Statue of Liberty, is utterly meaningless. <laughs> Baldwin even says that from a Black American perspective, that statue is a bitter joke that has nothing to do with liberty. It has nothing to do with fostering a sense of weakness or community with respect to, to, to black people in this country. And so I, I think Baldwin's, Baldwin's reflection on the question of liberty really forces us to confront those, those meta questions of, is there a we in the first place? Um, should there be a we? And I, w- I would also add this question as well. Has, has, has the ruling class, right, those, the, the ruling political class in this country's history ever genuinely been interested in creating a collective national we? Mm-hmm. I think Baldwin would say absolutely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he would say absolutely not. Because and Marcus, and, and you're, you're bringing to my mind as you, you talk about that, the, the major tension that exists, the, the two things that I'm thinking is, I, as I listen to um, your analysis there mm-hmm. on this whole issue of liberty, that liberty in this country has been so fundamentally tied to property. There you go. Right. There it's go. been so fundamentally tied to property. Yeah. And we're, we're seeing the COVID. If we come back to if we think about the COVID crisis, the, this crisis is exposing of, of who the haves and who the have nots are. I mean, it's exposing this in a big way. And, and the second thing is I'm hearing in your analysis as well, and I'm sorry for interrupting, but I, oh. this was just fresh on my mind, mm-hmm. but is that there's a major tension that exists within American society between the collective we and the individual. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so sure that we um, we we really think about that tension that exists there. Yeah. Does that, yeah. uh, I, I think so. And, and I would even argue that the collective we is really a myth. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it really exists only in the realm of myth. And, and what, what, what the American historical experience reveals is that America consists of, America consists of many different we's, <laughs> right? Many different groups. Um, that are trying to find ways to survive, mm-hmm. right? To survive in America's free market capitalist democratic landscape. Um, and, w- and with respect to the African-American community, um, that effort has always been, up- has, as I would say, really since, yeah, since, since the founding of the country, has always been opposed by um, the... Well, initially opposed by by um, by slavery, then after slavery, opposed by the Black Codes, Jim Crow, um, legal institutions that were designed to suppress um, Black aspiration, designed to exp- to suppress the development of Black communities, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. designed to limit or or 
or or or render impossible uh, black participation in, in, in American politics. Um, <clears throat> and so that that experience really has been definitive of of, of the, the, the African American story in this country. Right. And I think we have to confront that if if we're going to take if we're going to have a serious honest conversation about who we are because mm -hmm. from 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 my vantage point from Baldwin's vantage point there never has been a collective we we right. um the collective we was a part of a mythology that was then marketed to the rest of the world <laughs> uh which said look america is exceptional mm -hmm. because look who we are we are an exemplary paragon democracy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But Baldwin's point is that that mythology completely covers over <laughs> all that is beneath it. And, and, and what is beneath that mythological veneer is many different we's, <laughs> mm -hmm. many of which are, are opposed to one another. So, Marcus, uh, is it fair? So, you, this, is a, this is a big point that you're bringing out, the many we's. Mm -hmm. um, is it fair if I were to ask you this question? I mean, that COVID has really exposed that, that there's not just a collective we, but there are many we's here. And you I, look at the disparities, the disparities that this has exposed, especially within African-American community. And not too long ago, I read an article uh, that was written by Jane Wolf. that was, uh, she's a writer for Reuters. And um, just the, the headline, I mean, the, for that story was African-Americans more likely to die of the coronavirus uh, illness, early data shows, and that's continuing to kind of play out. And you and I talked about this a little bit, and I think that everyone is hearing it. You, you're hearing it in the news, depending on where you're picking up your news. Mm -hmm. um, you're hearing about the number, how heightened, um, how high the number of deaths among African-Americans, our people of color are right. with regard to, to uh, the coronavirus. And this really made me think about the conversation that you and I had with Dr. Dwight Mullen and the work that he has mm -hmm. done here locally that is looking at some of these. And as you're thinking about, you're talking about liberty and liberty, how liberty is really tied to property. Mm -hmm. You think about the lack of property ownership that exists among African-Americans, which also I think in a way contributes to the lack of access. I mean, oh, I, 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 in, my, in my own dissertation research, when I wrote about Asheville, um, and we're here in Asheville, North Carolina, but I think that this is the case in so many communities, not only across North Carolina, but across the country, we're seeing that play out. I mean, just think about mm -hmm. Chicago and what Chicago uh, looked like early on with regards to this. And think about Atlanta. Atlanta, which I think, uh, which really is, has kind of taken on that title as the black Mecca, you know, mm -hmm. because it has such a, a, a vibrant, or it has had such a vibrant African-American community in Atlanta. But we've seen how this COVID crisis has really exposed um, the challenges that still exist within that community. And I think about my dissertation, the last chap chapter of my dissertation, which focused on the politics um, of Asheville and Western North Carolina, looking at the development of African-American community. I titled that um, 
of that chap that chapter barely seen and rarely heard when we when it comes to the African American community people weren't listening they didn't have the same amount of access that other people did I think mm-hmm. that the past administration tried to address some of that with regard to uh, the health care issue um, mm-hmm. but nevertheless we still see that we're in major challenges however we come to it again. Think about the criminal justice system. Look who is um, who who is currently caught up in the in the uh, for the most part is largely a, an African American population. Mark, I had I had numbers here just to kind of illustrate this. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Chicago, but looking at Illinois overall, you know, African Americans make up only about thirty percent. Of in Illinois, 30%, they make up 30% of the state's cases and about 40 um, coronavirus cases and about 40% of the coronavirus related deaths, although they only make up 14.6% of the state's population. I mean, what, what are we going to do? And when you talk about the many we's, Mm-hmm. This is this this is not a group that has been a part of a collective we. Is that no. fair to say? No, it never has. I, and I think I think what I would what I would say, I don't know that I would say that COVID has ex, has necessarily exposed um, these issues of of inequality, these issues of lack of access, etc. Um, I would say that COVID has made it impossible to. Has made it has made it impossible for anybody to ignore, okay. especially the ruling class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, at this point, you cannot ignore it, and um, it is these these issues have been made so saliently visible now that they are perceptible even on a global stage. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, international communities can can gaze upon the United States situation and say, "Oh my gosh, you know, look at these." Look at these glaring issues of inequality. Look at the problems with respect to healthcare and access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. So you just can't ignore it now. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that that's one of the reasons that I that that's one of the reasons it seems to me that the U.S. is now at an at an, at an inflection point. point because you can't ignore this. Right. You, you have to you have to speak to it somehow. <laughs> Or do something about it. Um, otherwise, otherwise, let's just face right. it: your standing on the na- on the global political stage will diminish. Right, right. Because it will be, because it will, because it will become increasingly apparent that your domestic practice is grossly out of step with your with your political rhetoric. Right. And you and, and the reality and, and the reality is that that has been the case since the country's inception. It has. It has. <laughs> but but you know, and I and I want to tell you one of the things I, I can't because I have been saying, and you know that this is conversations that you and I have had privately, those conversations that turn into, you know, we, we want to only be on for a couple of minutes, but they turn into, you know, an hour and a half long discussion. I'm talking to you about books that I'm reading and engaging like Arthur Schlesinger's book, most most recently on the Vital Center, uh, The Politics of Freedom, I mean, which I think is just an important book. But remember, I told you, and I can't help but go there. uh, And what I'm going to say is that what Schlesinger was saying in his book in the 1940s had already been said in an earlier work 
in the critique of America, looking in the 1830s when we look at democracy in America and Alexis de Tocqueville's work. He was addressing a lot of this. And, and I, I still say that it's a text that we should go back to to get a, a, an understanding of who it is that we are. He, he raises so many different um, themes. There's so many different themes in that book. As a historian, and I think that you just triggered this in my mind to think about this and what you just said, that here in America, we don't think historically. We do, we do for certain reasons, as we've witnessed in the ongoing conversation, as we'll come to about, you know, uh, the legacy of the Civil War and uh, monuments. Um, but overall, um, and, and I will say there that, um, who was it? I will say there that C. Van Woodward, uh, who was oh, C. Yeah. Van Woodward, actually said that, um, you know, people who lose something in the South, whether or not it was willing to admit, it losses of war. People who lose have a longer memory than people who win. <laughs> right. So the folks who win, you know, are wanting to move on to the next yeah, thing. Right. The Tocqueville right. said that we were really given to that in this country because so much of what drove us was economics, you know, mm -hmm. economic success. So it doesn't give us the time to really think about what does it really mean to be uh, a community? What does that really mean? Because we're constantly moving on mm -hmm. to the next thing mm -hmm. so quickly. So I think, Marcus, as we, as we look at what, what uh, and again, I do agree with you here, exposed is not the word to use. I think really it has highlighted, highlighted in a glaring way uh, the fissures that ex and the disparities that exist in our society. And so as you're talking about this, Marcus, I can't help but think about leadership, right? <laughs> leadership, to lead us through this is going to become important. But I, I bring up the Tocqueville and our lack of thinking historically because I'm hoping that this inflection point will make us think more historically, yeah. that it will make us think more long term. Mm -hmm. Because I still think that this is a moment where we need to begin to work on developing the type of leadership that's going to be needed to help mm -hmm. our society, this country, and the globe really confront whatever the next crisis may be. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that, that, that that's that style of leadership that you're saying is needed needs to be leadership that that is capable of looking both to the past and to the future because i think one of the and this perhaps connects back to the tocqueville's critique or his analysis i should say of of american society um I think part of what it has meant to be American, to be to participate in the American we, is to be forward-looking. You know, we we are mm -hmm. a forward-looking people. Um, we're we're sort of always sort of charging ahead. And from my sort of perspective as a as a religion scholar, part of what I attribute that to is the is the um, is the religious doctrine. Of manifest destiny, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which says that you know the, the, the United States it has a sacred mandate to not only expand westward, right, but to continue to move forward, to spread its sense of self, to to um, to bless the rest of the world with right American now. political wisdom and economic largesse, mm -hmm. and that and that that continues to be, I would argue, a very much constitutive part of the American political imagination. Right. right. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I don't, I, it's, 
I don't know that we really ever had leadership at the presidential level mm-hmm. that was equally concerned about the past um, and the future. Right. I mean, I, the, 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 the tendency has been to, to <clears throat> okay, yeah, we have to deal with the present. Yeah, oh, it's messy. Mm-hmm. We have to deal, but the point is to move forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to move forward. Mm-hmm. And what I hear you saying as a historian is that, well, you know, women, women, let, let's, let's, let's slow down here and rethink what, what style, what brand of leadership the country really needs mm-hmm. right now right. and probably has always needed, quite frankly. Right. right. Um, and, and I would suggest that, you know, it, it needs to, it, that this leadership has to be able to look simultaneously backwards and forwards absolutely at the same time absolutely. in order to in order to inform in order to in order to properly be informed about how to move forward right but 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 here's the rub here's the rub that requires hard work right <laughs> that requires having nasty ugly conversations <laughs> with 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 um with James Baldwin's community, right, right, and right. other and other American wees who have been shut out, the, absolutely of the American dream, shut so, out of 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 what of 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 the collective American we. So and, in a way, Marcus, and there seems Lynn, to be, uh, it, it, there seems to be. I'm sorry, I hate to say it. There seems to be, or the history has been that there that we the history is that there's been a lack of social will. Right. To do, to do that. Maybe that's changing now. I don't so, know. But. Let's 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 talk about that. Right. Okay, because that, that's a good segue into and I know our listeners in this first show back are not gonna let you and I get away. <laughs> With having an entire show uh, without addressing the other major issue of the day, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and as you talk about leadership, and one of the things that you know we'll we'll let our listeners know that we want to come back to as we talk about styles of leadership is this. I'm hearing a lot out there, Marcus, now about the idea of collaborative leadership. Okay, so what does that look like? And we'll come back to that conversation and to that topic at some other point. I also want to address one of the things that you said that you know looking at presidential history in this country. The only president I can tell you who had this ability to simultaneously look backwards and forward um, was Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, who was willing to do that. And and you and I have talked about his second inaugural address. Mm -hmm. And everyone likes to quote the last paragraph of that address where he talks about charity, you know, uh, for all. But the paragraph before that is 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 very pointed and brutal as he looks back to the past and the injustices that have shaped the past. And he actually says that if we need to continue this war in order for those past wrongs to be fully addressed, can they be fully addressed? I, I, I would argue they cannot. Yeah. Um, but he was saying, OK, if, if it means this war continues, then it continues. Most people don't quote that particular paragraph. And, it, and it's, it's, it's very in, insightful about Lincoln. And it brings me to thinking about W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, comments about Lincoln, which I don't have here in front of me. But um, we'll, we'll come back to it on a later show where he described Lincoln as a human being, that he was inconsistent. He was a brave, brave man in that he was willing to be inconsistent. And I think that this says a lot about the human experience. But what you just said about this inability of our society, we, we're not seeing that type of leadership today, I would argue, in many places where it needs to be. Um, I do want to kind of tip my hat to 
um, to local organizations, because one of the things that Alexis de Tocqueville highlights in his work is the power of these independent organizations that emerged in communities to get things done. These organizations still exist. These, these associations still exist. And I have witnessed, Marcus, from the conversations that I've been in through this COVID, uh, the COVID crisis, that, um, that there are real leaders of these organizations who are trying to grapple with some of these issues. I mean, they're doing it in a way that we don't see at the national level are, uh, are you know, sometimes maybe even statewide in some of in some of our states. And it's unfortunate that we're not getting some of those examples of, of the hard work that people are trying to do. But um, let, let's talk about, you know, where we, we need to be able to, can we really address these past issues? Are we willing to confront them? And the George Floyd issue, we have to talk about George Floyd. His death, his murder, as, as we witnessed, um, Marcus, you know, uh, will we really have the ability? Now, we're, we're seeing an upheaval because of this, right? And one of the questions that emerged for me is I've been watching this, and we want to have a conversation with, with people who were involved in the, um, in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is different about what we're witnessing now? Is there a difference? Um, but the George Floyd... Uh, issue uh, is not new, as you and I both said in our, in our private conversations about this. Th- there's a long history of this. Uh, one person that we like to reference here is Rebecca Latimer Felton. Yeah. And if people don't recognize that name, I know that you you will reference her in some of the classes that you teach. I do. Uh, Re- Rebecca uh, Felton was the first woman, the first female to serve in the United States Senate from Georgia. Mm-hmm. And this was in the early part of the 20th century when she served in the century, the early 1900s. And she was appointed to that seat by the governor of Georgia to fill Tom Watson's uh, seat after he passed away as uh, as senator in Georgia. But Marcus, you know, she gave a speech where she called for, if it need be, the damming of the rivers of the South with the bodies of black men, that if we need to lynch a thousand black men a day, mm-hmm. then so be it. Mm-hmm. But this is a part of the history of this country. So yeah, yeah, and 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 and, and there we have, there we have, there we have um, a prominent member of American society promoting domestic terrorism, mm-hmm. and yet there is a historic monument to her in DeKalb County, Georgia, where I used to live, celebrating the fact that she was the first woman to be appointed to the United States Senate out of Georgia. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, and there's no mention whatsoever about that speech that she made mm-hmm. to Georgia farmers in the late 1890s. Right. And and brother, you know what happens? Um, also, what I would mention: what happens not too long after Felton is appointed to the U.S. Senate, and you're about um, to connect this to North yeah, Carolina history. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. um, but uh, <laughs> what what happens? And th- this takes place in in Valdosta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, some 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 of our listeners may be familiar with this. Some some may not. Um, and this is why I say that there really is nothing new about the George Floyd's public. But let, let's call it what it was. It was a public execution. Execution. Right. Um, so first part of the 20th century, I believe around, I, I believe somewhere in the 19 teens, Mary Turner, she's in Valdosta, Georgia. Her husband was uh, murdered by whites. And this is in Jim Crow, Georgia. <laughs> this is in Jim Crow, Georgia. Mary Turner has the temerity to um, call for justice. 
at her husband's, you know, and, and you know, for her husband's death. Um, at the time she was pregnant. And so what is the response of George of, of Georgian whites to Mary Turner's call for justice in Jim Crow, Georgia? She and this is very gruesome, so just be forewarned listeners, she strung up to a tree. And again, and keep in mind, you know, this is a part, what we're saying here is that this kind of very public, spectacular execution of black bodies is, 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 is definitive, I would argue, of America's racial legacy. Right, right. It's definitive of it. She's strung up to a tree. She's pregnant. Keep in mind, she's pregnant. Her stomach is cut open. The fetus falls out. And the head of the fetus is stomped to smithereens. Mm-hmm. By this, by this, by, by this white mob, and then of course Mary Turner, I believe her body was then immolated. She was burned alive, and so I always, I, I always find it. I have, I have found it very peculiar that it took George Floyd's death over the course of eight minutes and forty six seconds being publicly recorded to galvanize a, a first a national, then an international um, <clears throat> outcry. Mm-hmm in the form of staged protest in various locations. Right. Um, and to me, what it just spoke to is a lack of historical consciousness. People just don't really, people seem not to know. Like this is new. Uh, this is this country's, you know, because mm. there's a long history of not, of, of not just domestic terrorism, but state and federally sanctioned domestic terrorism right. against black bodies. Because, Marcus, as you think Floyd's about... Floyd's death is nothing new at all. It's not. And you think about, you know, historically, we, we talked about R- Rebecca Latimer Felton, and you mm-hmm. talked about the res- what, what the response for the call for justice was in Georgia. Many people don't realize, and, you know, and I teach North Carolina history, and those who are, are well-versed in North Carolina's history knows that, in a way, Rebecca Latimer Felton's speech is tied to the 1898 race riots riots, (laughs) are, as we now call it, the coup that took place in um, in Wilmington, North Carolina, because Alex Manley, who was the uh, the the black editor of the black newspaper, had the audacity to respond to what she had to say. (laughs) So it, it. Right. It just shows you the imbalance in, in the justice system. Um, and, 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 and Marcus, this raises a larger question for me. What do we even mean by justice? Exactly. Do we have an understanding of that? Um, and what what is it that we're – again, it, it brings me back to that question, Marcus, of who are we – What and even if we throw that question out, as we get ready to move forward and we look more – to moving forward as a community. And you and I will have to come back to this because one of the issues that we want to kind of address as well is the response. As we look at the overall, the larger response to George Floyd's death, monuments across the South are coming down. We've had conversations about that, you and I. Uh, we would you know, recommend that our listeners go back and listen to the shows that we did yeah. with uh, historian Steve Nash, especially go back and listen to the shows that we did with David Blight. And we're going to be coming back to those um, at, at some point. But it, we, we've been addressing these, uh, these issues over the course of, of the show. But Marcus, again, as we look forward and having to contend and deal with this history, I'm waiting to see how we're going to deal with it, if we are. If we do. You know, who is it? That's right. Who is it that we wish to be as we move forward and think about that? And and, and I I want to just really drive this this point home. Black people out in the street protesting 
or black scholars writing books about um, America's legacy of racism. That neither of those things was enough to galvanize a global a global protest movement for racial justice. What it took, what it took in order to galvanize this was in essence a modern day spectacle lynching. I, I want our listeners to not lose that. That is what it took to galvanize an international movement for racial justice. Right. And and if if that isn't enough to launch the kind of serious historical work you're describing, I don't know what is. Right. So I don't know what is. And so and so to me, you know, and, and what I would also say is as an African American, you know, the, the, the fact that it took a spectacle lynching to mobilize this sort of global, this global movement, to me, is nothing to celebrate. Right. I find it, it to be it is. an it embarrassment is. indictment on a, just our country's lack of historical knowledge. Right. So, uh, Marcus, so, it, brings, it brings me back, and that, I think that that is a good way for us to, to kind of end this hour that yeah. we've been able to spend together yeah. with, with our listeners, and, and we will come back. Marcus and I will be coming back to this issue of the legacy of the Civil War as we have been witnessing across the South monuments come down, and it's not only here. And so uh, we'll be coming back to the, to those to those issues, but Marcus, again, you know, uh, who 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 do we want to be? Um, what what is it that we want to? Our children, you know, your son Carter, my two sons Jonathan and Lewis are, you know, uh, what do we want them to inherit from us? Um, but we've got to be willing to do to do the hard work, and also that means having, I think, I would argue, uh, as a historian, having a deeper appreciation of history and the struggles and the challenges that our our story together uh, in this country has been going back to those founding documents, the document, uh, the Declaration of Independence itself. What does it actually mean? What does it say? Um, Lincoln, over the course of his presidency, would continuously go back to that document. And uh, you, you and I want to go back to it and we want to talk about it. And so um, there's so many issues here. I think Indeed. that this has been a really, really good conversation conversation. The points that you have brought up, I think, are just very pointed um, things for us to think about. Um, we want to come back and talk about uh, the Vance Monument, what's going on with the Vance Monument. We want to talk about the Freedmen's Monument in, in Washington, D.C., and also about other monuments that have been constructed across the South. So Marcus and I are going to look forward to getting back to, together with you all in the very, very near future taking a deeper dive into these issues, not only about the COVID crisis and about George Floyd, but we're going to do a deeper dive, especially in the historical narrative that has shaped us over the course of uh, these many years. How is that narrative changing? Um, I have been arguing since 2014 that we needed to find a way to democratize this narrative if it could be democratized. What does that even look like? Uh, so we're going to have a deeper conversation around that. But in the meantime, we want to thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for being here. And Marcus and I again want to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org on the BPR mobile app on Apple Music and Google Play. 
And you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter, as you all have been doing. And we thank you so much for doing that. Marcus, thank you. I've had a good time with you today just having this conversation. And thanks to Blue Ridge Public. Yeah, thank you to Blue Ridge Public Radio for finding a way to get us all back together again. Marcus and I will look forward to, uh, to talking with you all again soon. Okay, take care.